The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such persons or organizations' sole risk. It is now my pleasure to turn the conference over to Mr. Jim Washer. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you. Hello and welcome to today's Energy Intelligence Virtual Roundtable. My name is Jim Washer. I'm Energy Intelligence's London Bureau Chief, and it's my pleasure to be your host for today's discussion. Oil markets in 2017 has OPEC done enough. Now, 2016 has been a fairly topsy-turvy year for OPEC, with the disappointments of Doha, followed by the elation of Algiers and now the vindication of Vienna. We have the first real OPEC output cutting deal in eight years, a pledge to take some 1.2 million barrels per day off the market starting in January. And non-OPEC producers have now backed this up with their own promise to cut output by more than 550,000 barrels a day, with Russia leading the way. Now, the OPEC deal is, to be honest, rather complicated and has involved concessions from Saudi Arabia and Iraq, exemptions for Libya and Nigeria, and special consideration for Iran. And it's all been too much for Indonesia, which has effectively decided to leave OPEC again. So, to explain, help explain how the deal might work and how it might impact oil markets and prices next year, I'm joined by three of our markets and OPEC experts. In New York, our Chief Economist, Dr. David Knapp. In Nicosia, from our Middle East team, Rafiq Latter. And here in London, from our oil markets team, Tim France. David, Rafiq, Tim, welcome and thank you for joining us today. So, Rafiq, um, if I can start with you, um, a couple of questions. Firstly, what kind of internal OPEC issues and difficulties had to be overcome to make this deal happen? And secondly, how good do we expect OPEC compliance to be? Thanks, Jim. Well, I'd just like to get back to uh, the first thing you said. This has been a topsy-turvy year. If you go back to April and Doha, uh, coming out of there, um, just to remind folks uh, that you know, basically OPEC had a deal all set up uh, for a freeze, and in the 11th hour, uh, word came from Riyadh that there was no deal, uh, and then you know credibility was damaged, and, and then the after that, after after this, um, you know anyone looking at OPEC would have uh, reasonable grounds to doubt whether they could organise a coffee uh, evening together, let alone uh, any sort of a cut. Um, bit by bit, momentum changed, uh, grew, and the mood changed, and. Uh, uh, you know, they surprised us. This has been 13 years I've been covering this. Um, this has been the most surprising year. Um, they got this deal in, in Algiers, and after this deal, they still had very significant um, obstacles to overcome. Uh, in short, this deal uh, stipulated some exemptions for Nigeria, Iran, and, uh, and uh, Libya. Uh, but uh, it didn't mean that, that Iran could produce whatever it wanted. Uh, Iran was insisting that it would accept nothing below uh, 4 million barrels a day, its pre-sanctions uh, level. Um, and this is something that, was, you know, all, all this stuff was, was beaten on, on a very high drum from, from, uh, from the president downwards. Uh, and uh, Iraq, was, uh, which hadn't been subject to an OPEC quota, since 1998, uh, was uh, nominally accepting 
to, to be subject to any output action, but was refusing to accept the numbers that OPEC was giving them, which are these um, the numbers any cut would be based on, which are these secondary source numbers of which uh, POW, our organization, makes one of the six. Um, and right up till a week before this uh, meeting in, in Vienna, uh, the November the 30th, uh, was adamant that he would not accept these numbers. Um, it's pretty, you know, uh, they they brought, unprecedentedly, they brought a whole lot of analysts all the way to Baghdad to argue their case. Uh, they had uh, the OPEC Secretary General, uh, Mohammed Barkindo, who has really been the engineer and architect of this deal, came in and met the president and, and you know, various opposition uh, um, um, politicians. Uh, Anyhow, the week before, there seemed to be a change of mood. But right until uh, until half an hour before this meeting happened, you know, they had a, an emergency breakfast meeting on November the 30th, and and then uh, sort of uh, the open press bit before the meeting. You know, th this thing was in doubt, very much in doubt. Um, Iraq's minister had to go back and call Baghdad a couple of times, uh, but they did it. They pulled it off. It was really. I have to admit, I was surprised they pulled a rabbit out of the hat, and uh, they've certainly come up with something that's coherent and transparent. Uh, whether they'll comply is the 64 million, well, more than 64 million, um, more like 64 billion dollar question, um, uh, if not more. Um, certainly, there seems to be a, a level of seriousness from the core Gulf and, and Saudi side. You know, uh, UAE's already, UAE and Kuwait have already signaled. Uh, a drop in allocations. Uh, Khalil Fed, Saudi Energy Minister, ha has actually gone a out and said that he's willing for their cut to be bigger than the, the, um, the 10.058, uh, whatever it is, stipulated, i.e. a bigger cut to begin with. And I suspect that's because it's quite clear that even among those uh, countries that have pledged to cut, there might be some delays in there. And so he wants, he wants some sort of immediate impact to hit home. Um, Beyond this, yeah, there are some serious doubts as, as to uh, compliance. You know, Iraq, the consistent messaging that anyone who's covered Iraqi OPEC policy for, for the last few years has got is we will not cut, um, especially with this war with uh, Islamic State. Um, we need every penny we got and we merit an exemption. Uh, that seems to have changed. Uh, but I would like to see any sign of real barrels. I, I note that in November, Iraqi production went up further still. Um, the most recent OPEC monthly report came up and showed, showed a slight rise. Uh, we actually make it bigger, so it's above 4.6, although not as much as they claim. Um, but in short, I think there will definitely be some uh, output response to this deal. And it, uh, compared to where we were a few months ago, it will have some impact. Whether it has, has enough um, remains to be seen. Okay, thank you. So OPEC has, as Rafiq says, pulled this off to the surprise of many. Um, so David, if I can turn to you now, how does this deal, in your opinion, change the outlook for markets and supply demand balances next year? And does it, does it really change the expected timeline we've got for rebalancing? Uh, absolutely. The expected timeline has uh, been advanced. Uh, I just ran some balances in the last couple of days based on the latest information, and uh, we expect that there will actually be some small draws uh, or differences between supply and demand in the middle of the year in the second and third quarters. 
uh, first quarter, there'll still be a surplus, and there may be a surplus that comes back at the end of the year. But the, the watchword, I think, is volatility um, and uncertainty. And as Rafiq points out, there are a lot of uncertainties about compliance levels in, uh, uh, in OPEC. Um, we have decided that we're going to take them at their word. Uh, they've surprised us with the uh, speed with which Mr. Barkindo brought all this together. And so as a baseline, we're assuming that uh, people are in pretty good compliance and that Saudi Arabia will be an adequate, let's call them a shock absorber, is a much more acceptable word than the other two words, uh, swing producer. Uh, but they'll be willing to uh, eat any differences from the exempted folk. Um, the compliance uh, issue for non-OPEC, however, uh, is really all about Russia. Uh, most of the other uh, countries, that the 11 countries or the 10 other countries, um, if you look at projections from oil market intelligence and from a lot of other people, uh, that this is really a question of making a virtue out of necessity since we expected production to be down in a lot of these countries anyway. But throughout the year, um, again, there's going to be um, some adjustments on the financial side of the market, which obviously has accepted everything at sort of full value uh, and has pushed prices ahead. Any disappointments, I think, will quickly show up in lower oil prices. Okay, thank you, David. Um, Rafiq, if I can just turn back to you and ask a question about longer-term OPEC strategy. Uh, do you think this agreement marks the end of OPEC's market forces experiment, the one launched at the end of 2014, or is this, as Saudi Energy Minister Khalid Al-Fala suggested at our Oil and Money Conference a few weeks ago, just a helping hand for a strategy, a market forces strategy that was already working? Hmm. Well, I, I think with all due respect, uh, Mr. Fairliff would be a bit disingenuous. I mean, I mean, uh, to go back to a year and, and uh, the Saudis really were very ideological that no way would they touch um, the market and, and those, the days where they, they intervened appeared to be over for quite some time. So I think to a certain extent, yes, it, it, is, it, it is over or suspended. This experiment is a, a suspended. Uh, how long it will stay suspended, I very much depends on the success or otherwise of, of, of this cut. Um, and I, I suspect the Saudis themselves do not know. Um, I think everyone's playing things by ear. Um, I think certainly a strategic decision has been made at a level higher than oil uh, ministries uh, that cooperation and market management is needed. Um, and I think to, to a certain level, this goes to goes, um, touches areas beyond simply oil and energy strategy. I think there's a coalition of interests. I'm not saying any, anything's been decided between Putin and, and, and Saudis and, and possibly the Iranians uh, that on certain issues on oil market, it is in their interest. To, to show some form of united front, to show that they do make a difference. Uh, and um, that's certainly been reflected in what's happened over the past couple of months. Um, but should the wheels come off uh, and uh, there be very little compliance from, from, from outside, uh, we could see some major changes. I mean, the Saudis have, sh uh, have shown them 
themselves to um, to be open to changes in a way that, that they weren't in the 10 years or so uh, under the previous Oil Minister Ali Naimi. And I think a lot of this down is down to the influence of the, 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 the new Saudi economy Tsar um, um, and Deputy uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's really driven all, all, all this, or certainly has given his seal of approval to anything that's happened on, on macro Saudi oil policy in the last few months, including the proposed uh, Aramco IPO and, uh, and um, scotching that um, Doha deal. So, so in short, yes, it's suspended, but for how long, we'll need to see. Okay. Tim, a question for you now. Uh, this deal uh, was announced, uh, confirmed at the end of November. It's been a couple of weeks uh, now. So what has the oil market's reaction been? Has it really changed the mood amongst speculators? Are they taking more long positions? Yeah, thanks, Jim. So with regards to the market, um, Brent crude has obviously rallied by $10 since OPEC actually reached the deal. And in the build-up, there was a lot of volatility, um, and a lot of traders were actually caught unawares especially after Goldman pets out a memo of giving OPEC a 30% chance of an agreement that morning. So a lot of short, short positions are actually piled on in the build-up, and traders had to run and cover those positions, and as a result, uh, prices climbed to around $54. Um, now since then, there were obviously some expected retracements, but the 1.2 million barrel per day production cut has lifted the market comfortably from a $45 to $50 range to a $50 to $55 range. Um, on Monday, Brent actually broke into the $55 to $60 range after non-OPEC players um, agreed a deal, but that may may not be sustainable in the short term due to you know, aforementioned concerns over compliance. So at this point, the big banks are not overreacting. You know, Barclays, Deutsche, Macquarie, They've not really changed their range for 2017. They're keeping Brent in the $55 to $60 range for the year. Uh, Bank of America are actually a little bit more bullish at 61 for the year. Um, this again reflects doubt over compliance, as well as the significant global oil inventories that markets have still got to work through. Now, one of the most interesting points, actually, of the markets the last few weeks has, obviously, the, the hike in front month futures has lifted the entire forward curve offering price prices of $55 plus in Cal 17, even higher in Cal 18, and producers have actually jumped on the chance to hedge production. You know, you've got an estimated 300,000 barrels a day has been hedged into 2017 and 2018 since Algiers alone, and there was the latest flurry on Sunday night in response to the non-OPEC non deal. Now, it's actually U.S. shale producers who are putting the majority of hedges on here, and part of that reflects their debt obligations and finances are asking them to do so. Um, and this has actually caused the curve to flatten out beyond July 17 into the second half of next year. And we even see backwardation in places. Um, now, the significance of this is the fact that contango market economics no longer actually supports storage into the second half of next year. So that could well increase the chances of inventories coming off through that period, especially as traders can no longer support that, support that trade, and they need to liquidate their storage positions. Okay, very interesting, Tim. Thanks. Um, you mentioned inventories. David mentioned earlier on um, this possibility of uh, small uh, stock draws in the middle of next year. So, David, if I can go back to you, this, this inventory overhang and, and working it off is going to be a key element in the rebalancing process. So I'm wondering, in the light of this OPEC deal now, what is your outlook for inventories next year? 
Well, I think the inventories are, in fact, going to be uh, unwanted at some point, uh, probably around the middle of the year. And it all depends on the very unpredictable uh, nature of the direction or the shape of the forward price curve. Rather than price levels, we really need to be thinking about, about the shape. Uh, and that's where the volatility comes from. I mean, those are sort of one and the same, that the volatility about when things happen and how expensive uh, the cuts are, uh, the whole game that, uh, that got mentioned by Tim, that the, uh, the trading forward in order to um, hedge your drilling programs for 2017 is an incredibly important part of the non-OPEC deal, that uh, there are, yes, there are cuts, which, as I mentioned, are not clear that they weren't going to happen anyway, uh, but that's working against more U.S. shale, something that we've talked about consistently. Shale caused all of this. There was an OPEX meeting in, 24, in, uh, in 2014 in November that caused prices to collapse. It was the, the birth of uh, the U.S. shale era, uh, and that's going to continue to be important. And 2017 is a bit of a transition year, and the IPO obviously is going to affect what we hear from Saudi Arabia uh, in terms of talking up prices. But after 2017, um, I think, in fact, the market share battle has been won. When you look at the cuts in um, expenditure by international oil companies, both NOCs and IOCs, um, that there's going to have to be very aggressive production from somewhere, and that somewhere is going to be Saudi Arabia. Uh, and I expect that what they will do is not to add new capacity, but rather to push much harder on their current fields. The idea that they need to get rid of oil and convert it into other assets very quickly as part of the Vision 2030 or 2050 or whatever it is, I think is the underlying um, uh, imperative for uh, where oil markets are going. So rather than a, a price spike that many people have uh, alerted us to uh, coming between 2018 and 2020, I think instead we get a flood of uh, oil out of Saudi Arabia as they try to make this conversion. Okay, thanks. And can I just apologize for some of the background noise we had there when David was uh, giving us his answer? I think we have a slightly ropey connection there, so sorry about that. Um, if we can just go back to Tim, just on the physical market, um, if OPEC delivers some or all of his cuts, where are we likely to see changes and pressures in the market? What sort of grades are going to be cut, and what kind of impact will that have on differentials and trade flows? Yes, yeah, so speaking to suppliers and, and buyers um, regarding the physical crude trade, the focus is very much on, on the Middle East, as that's where the highest level of compliance and the highest level of cuts would like to come from. You know, if producers make good on the deal, then you've got a combined 966 KBD will be taken out the market, and the majority of that is actually coming on term contracts. So with Saudi set to cut, what, 486,000 barrels per day, um, it looks like you know, US and European buyers will bear the brunt of that cut, maybe some losses to Asia as well. Um, and this is certainly a signal coming from the official February selling prices which saw price hikes in the US and Europe um, and significant cuts to Asia again. Um, now, Saudis normally dictate monthly OSPs uh, from Middle East suppliers, and already we can see Iraq and Iran are more or less following suit with hikes on the heavy and medium power grades to Europe. Um, turning to Russia, actually, um, 
Russia has also agreed a production cut of 300,000 barrels, 300, barrels per day. Um, but it'll be interesting to see actually how this cut manifests and how they'll direct, direct supplies. Now, over the last year, they've been maxing out exports to the east, um, and they've worked hard to build market share in China, so will they want to let that go or not? Who knows? Um, in Europe, uh, they've been cutting supplies to the Black, Black Sea, uh, relinquishing market share to Middle East supplies in the Med, um, and increased um, exports through the Baltic ports, um, which has helped them to preserve their dominant market share in Northern Europe. Um, so going forward, it looks like the Med, you know, that could be the sacrificial lamb for Russian producers. Um, and they've struggled in that region to compete with low prices from KRG and Iran, um, neither of whom are obviously going to be cutting production. So, you know, while producers, you know, they can control output and direction in term supplies, um, arbitrage economics will probably dominate um, how, how things change in the spot market. Uh, traders, they expect to see a narrowing of the sweet, sour, crude spread in the months ahead, um, as the cuts from OPEC will likely come on your heavy grades, such as Arab heavy or Basra heavy. Meanwhile, light sweet will probably remain oversupplied. You know, you've got Libya, you've got Nigeria boosting supply. As David mentioned, shale likely to increase production. Um, meanwhile, in the North Sea, we're still seeing volumes rise there. So as that sweet spread narrows, um, you know, refiners might see economics change on different grades, and we could see a switch from sour grades to lighter grades. So we'd also like to bear in mind that there be some seasonal variances coming along with that as well. Um, finally, looking over to the benchmark spreads, you know, uh, Dubai being the sour benchmark spread, that's probably going to come a bit closer to Brent because that's for the same reasons. Um, and that could make it a little bit easier for Atlantic Basin barrels to trade east. So that could take some pressure off in North Sea and the Med. Mm. Um, meanwhile, Brent's WTI spread over the last week or so, that's widened significantly. So if you hear shale production comes on in response to those hedges, um, then this wider spread could hold, and that could potentially back out some of the light sweet imports that have been going into the U.S. So that may or may not be an outlook outlet, sorry for for producers come 2017. Okay, interesting. Um, Jim, I, I, I might offer a footnote to uh, to the oh, Saudi part of things. Uh, with the neutral zone apparently coming back on, there's a question as to whether or not. Uh, that's going to be ignored or whether that's going to be rolled in. So um, if they produce around 250, that's 125 each for Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. And what we're expecting is that that 486 come, becomes more like 600 uh, for Saudi Arabia and that they will willingly do that. But that's a bit of an open question, something to keep an eye on. Yeah, that's almost overlooked, isn't it, with all the other supply sources people are thinking about. The neutral zone has almost been, um, been forgotten. Okay, uh, I think at this point we should see if we've got any questions uh, coming in from our audience. Certainly. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone telephone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. And we will pause for a moment to allow questions to queue. Okay, and while we're waiting for those first questions to come through, David, if I can just come back to you again. I mean, we've obviously talked you know, two weeks on from the meeting a lot about OPEC on this call. But can I just ask you as well, what, in your view, are the other big factors uh, we need to keep an eye on next year for oil markets, be they fundamental or geopolitical or economic? I think the biggest uncertainty for me is Venezuela. 
Um, I don't think there's any doubt that there's probably going to be a major disruption to Venezuelan supply associated with their failed economy and their failed uh, oil company. Um, and so that could remove several hundred thousand barrels a day, uh, which sort of involuntarily helps OPEC uh, and helps the balances. Um, obviously, the big thing, I just spent a week in Japan talking to uh, companies there, and all they wanted to talk about was Trump, 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 Trump. Uh, so the impact of uh, Trump's policy on global trade, oil included, possibility of uh, having um, uh, some sort of an oil import fee, uh, things like that, and um, certainly much less friendly um, relationships with major Middle East producers. Uh, not only is he willing to hate Iran, he's, he'll hate uh, Saudi Arabia and hate uh, Iraq at the same time. Um, and one of the Japanese said, how do Americans feel about uh, Abe being friendly now with Putin? And I said, sir, we have our own problem with regard to Putin and our leaders. So uh, those are all things that are in the background. And obviously Brexit, uh, economic effects of that, um, as maybe a counter to a better U.S., we have uh, still major problems with the financial sectors in uh, uh, not only in uh, in Europe, but uh, negative interest rates in, in uh, Japan as well. So uh, the economic situation just adds to the whole volatility. Uh, geopolitics, in a way, don't matter uh, as long as there's uh, as much of a surplus. And within the surplus, I include the, the stock overhang. Uh, that there just isn't a lot to worry about in terms of whether it's going to be enough oil. Okay, thank you. Very interesting. Um, let's just see if we have now any questions coming in from our audience. Once again, that was the star in one to ask a question. And at this time, it appears we do not have any questions. Okay, thanks. Uh, well, let's just move on then. Uh, we, we, we touched on this in some of the answers already so far, but I just wanted to come back and maybe I'll repeat this question just about um, non-OPEC. Uh, I personally was skeptical about all the um, proposals for sort of non-OPEC support for this deal. And then, of course, last weekend we've had this meeting of non-OPEC producers and this pledge to cut output as well. Um, I mean, historically, they have a patchy record of supporting OPEC output action. So, Rafiq, I mean, do you think we can genuinely expect a lot of non-OPEC support for this deal? Um, I think we can generally expect quite a lot of production slumps in some non-OPEC countries. Uh, and uh, OPEC has very artfully orchestrated and highlighted this in, in, in this deal. So a lot of a lot of the countries that, that did sign on for this, and you know, it is really unprecedented. I think they're, they're 10. So you know, in previous, in 1998, 2001, you had two or three uh, non-OPEC uh, countries uh, signing on for for cuts, and, and none of them did anything. Uh, in, in this one, um, you know, you've got 10 cu countries. Uh, and some of them are very, very modest cuts, and will just probably take uh, be implemented via natural declines. Um, um, uh, but you know, I think it's it kind of helped the messaging. It's been a masterful bit of messaging by OPEC. Um, now, are there going to be real cuts? Certainly, there has been. I mean, and the key thing is, as, as David pointed out, is Russia, and certainly there have been discussions. Uh, to engineer some real Russian cuts. Whether they will happen or not, 
I think the jury's out. I mean, from past experience, there won't be anything. One has to say there's not going to be any. From past experience, you would have thought that nothing intentional is going to happen. But there has been uh, an agreement to cut by the... So Russia's proportion of this uh, 558 um, KBD is some 300. And there has been sort of agreement to cut some 200 by in March and the full 300 uh, by um, uh, by May. So that will be the key thing to monitor, uh, really. Um, I, you know, I suspect that the other stuff is, it will be, yeah, natural declines. Um, and uh, um, so, so, yeah, in short. Okay. Let's check again. Yeah, Jim, this is, this is David. Sorry, David. Yeah, um, the ones that aren't included are also important, and that's Canada. Uh, and Brazil are two of the sources besides the U.S., uh, led by the shale in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, that are feeding um, what most of the major forecasting services are now looking for an increase in non-OPEC production next year. OPEC's report that just came out has a couple hundred thousand. We have closer to a million, uh, even with these cuts. So, I mean, 20,000 out of North and South Sudan uh, doesn't really do much for me in terms of what the oil market is going to do. What I'm focusing on is uh, uh, is Canada, Brazil, uh, U.S., and uh, Kashagan, uh, which may or may not be uh, held back at all. It could be that they just use declines in some of the other fields in the uh, in the western part of the country um, to allow that in. Uh, and same thing with Shahelian in the U.K. and some other new fields coming on. Uh, that may counter uh, whatever is going on in some of these other countries like Oman and, uh, and Azerbaijan, et cetera. So when you add it all up, you're still dealing with some more OPEC, non-OPEC oil next year, uh, even with their participation. So as Rafiq said, this is really about the show. Uh, the idea that OPEC is back in control and that world oil producers are acting together, uh, that may be very nice on paper and that may help psychology of the market, but in terms of the physical market, there still is apt to be a bit too much oil next year as, uh, as inventories come down. And as an addendum to what David just said, in addition to Venezuela being a wild card, there's Libya as well, and that's got a lot of upside should a modicum of political stability be restored. So I think it's just above 600, um, you know, could go to 900 very quickly. Uh, and um, over a, a million within like five or six months should there be like really just some basic security re restored at, along, uh, on key fields belonging to Repsol and E&I and at, at uh, uh, the port that, um, that they service. Um, so we're not, I'm not suggesting anything fancy like peace breaking out, out um, just a modest sort of upgrade and, and a local deal that had been done. Uh, and that could throw um, a real spanner in the works. That's an important point. I mean, it's not just pressure on this OPEC deal from non-OPEC. Uh, there's also this pressure from within OPEC from some of these countries, as you mentioned, that have got exemptions. Let's just check and see if we have any questions from the audience again. And as a reminder, that was a star and one on your phone. And we'll take our first question from Rachel Razor. Please go ahead. Hi. Um, how do you think that the weak ruble is going to affect Russia's compliance with the deal? 
the weak ruble. Uh, I'm not sure we have any real ruble experts on this call, but we'll see if we can um, can help give you an answer, Rachel. Um, David or Rafiq, either of you want to take that one? Sure. No, obviously the weak ruble was huge in, in uh, fueling the increase that we saw uh, in Russia in uh, in 2016. Um, I mean, a lot of us were thinking that the sanctions were starting to bite, that output would go down, but their break-even cost just fell through the floor because they pay all of their oil service fees in local currency. Um, so the ruble is going to be uh, making it harder uh, for there to honor their commitment. Um, also, I think, you know, it's, it's pointed out quite often that the last time, uh, eight years ago, when there was agreement uh, that Russia signed on and then the increase of production every month, uh, mainly because the government doesn't control what the oil companies do. Um, now, obviously, the government has their fingers in a number of the key players, Rosneft and, uh, and Gazprom and, and places like that, so that... Uh, they may have a bit more control, and they also control the pipeline system and things like uh, export fees and whatever financial instruments can be used to restrain stuff. Um, but then again, the weak ruble uh, kind of plays into trade dynamics, the J-curve and things like that. And so um, it's, uh, again, just part of all of the uncertainties going on. Um, obviously, Putin is trying hard to wait out the sanction and maybe hoping to even get a, a, a constructive result from the new Putin administration on easing back on some of that so they can get going with their Arctic and some of their heavy oil development to, and uh, possible shale stuff. They have a huge shale resource that really requires foreign help uh, and technology in order to make it work. Um, and again, that will cost them dearly if they have to pay in dollars rather than rubles. So, a uh, very good question, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks, David. Was that, was that helpful, Rachel? That was very helpful. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks. Okay. Any other questions from our audience? At this time, it appears we have no further questions. Okay. Well, just one other thing I was going to ask. This is rather uh, off-topic, I suppose, given we've been talking about uh, OPEC and, and oil markets uh, today. But the other big news, obviously, in the oil industry this week has been uh, the confirmation uh, that ExxonMobil boss Rex Tillerson will be Donald Trump's Secretary of State. Um, so I just wanted to ask, um, you know, both both David and Rafiq, what you think Rex Tillerson is going to bring to this role, what he might find challenging. Um, and how is international business experience, not just in Russia, as so many people have been discussing, but in places like Iraq and Saudi Arabia, might help him? Rafiq, maybe you'd like to go first. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not a US oil guy, but, but I, I do look at the Middle East, and uh, I would say I've, I've seen uh, Mr. Tillerson sort of interacting with, with Saudi industry leaders, and it's clear he attaches quite a lot of importance to this relationship. Uh, so I, I think we can ex expect, like... Um, that traditional U.S. Um, import, the uh, traditional importance Washington attaches to straits of uh, uh, straits of homeland security uh, intensifying, if anything. Um, I would say that I think he's lacked the sure-footedness, certainly in international dealings, that his predecessor had. Um, specifically, mm. I, I cover Iraq, and I, I note that Mr. Tillerson. You know, he did this in 2012. He did this. It was supposed to be a legacy building, sort of. You know, this is this is what what I'm about. This is what people will remember me. Kind of investment, the same way that uh, that Lee Raymond had the mobile um, merger to go into Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan, and, and 
you know, put down a marker, get six big blocks. They got very good, um, very good um, terms. I think it's you know, an open secret these terms were, were were better than anyone else got out there because the Kurds expected uh, Exxon to use their muscle to get uh, to get Washington to basically uh, pressure Baghdad into recognizing uh, Kurdish independence. Uh, that did not happen. Um, I, I think he was. I know he was warned that three of the six blocks. Uh, that they were going uh, into were not actually in what is recognized as Kurdish territory. And so you could say that that, that Exxon's investment um, contributed to making that Iraqi-Kurdistan dispute a lot worse, exacerbating it. Uh, and it's proves a bit of a turkey, both from a security perspective, which I, I guess you couldn't foresee the ISIS war, uh, but also geologically. Um, so I think you know there's question marks there, and apparently it caused quite a lot of blood, bad blood personally between him and and the uh, State Department bureaucracy, um, it, it, who are responsible for 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 the region. So it's not a great opening gambit from that perspective. Certainly, I'm sure David has other views um, to add. That's very interesting, Rafiq. Yes, David, what are your thoughts on this appointment? Well, initially, I think that from the U.S. side, that the idea was that this was just another thumb in the eye of climate change in COP21, uh, since Exxon has been uh, fairly high-profile in terms of challenging science. Uh, but when you look a little deeper, that um, some of the statements from Tillerson uh, doesn't really suggest that the U.S. will be taken fully out of the game, and it probably shouldn't. I mean, given the amount of global support, uh, that to go it completely alone on this doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and I was surprised that it turned out that he was serious about appointing it, uh, and now has. Uh, and I guess what you get there is a professional manager. I mean, running Exxon um, is like running a country. Um, and uh, Dillerson, I think, is well understood uh, to have been uh, uh, very good at it. Um, and uh, he won the Petroleum Executive of the Year, so he had to end up getting out of the position. That's been a bit of a tradition with us <laughs> at the Oil and Money Conference. Um, but, you know, obviously not having a diplomat uh, in that position uh, when you certainly don't have a diplomat in the Oval Office uh, anymore, uh, he doesn't even seem to know the phone number of the State Department before he starts calling people in Taiwan stuff like that. So, uh, again, part of the volatility. Um, there are those of us that thought that maybe uh, a good outcome would be if Trump follows through on a few of his uh, less objectionable uh, campaign rhetoric uh, and then goes to sleep for three years, a la Reagan, and allows a set of competent um, and, and uh, well-qualified people to do uh, the jobs of running the administrative branch of the U.S. government. Well, so far, uh, he doesn't get uh, top marks on, on that. Uh, mostly these are more politically uh, oriented um, and financially qualified, I guess. That this is the billionaire cabinet. Um, mm. And Tillerson probably isn't a billionaire and, and probably doesn't want to be, so maybe he's the best of a lot that we've seen so far because he's not a general and he's, uh, he's not a billionaire. Okay. Interesting. Thank you, David. I think with that, we are pretty much out of time, I'm afraid. So it just remains for me to thank everyone who has listened in um, and to thank David, um, Rafiq and Tim for their answers. 
Um, our next virtual roundtable takes place next month, so please check our website, www.energyintel.com, for details of the topic and participants, which will be posted shortly. So until then, thank you, goodbye, and see you in 2017. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.